Warning. This episode contains violence, racist language, and scenes that some listeners may find distressing. It was Friday, January 27th, 2023. We were halfway through making this series. I received an email. An email which made me wonder whether you would even want to listen to this podcast anymore. The sender was my script consultant. She's based in Brooklyn. The subject of the email was heads up. It said, Hey y'all, just wanted to give you a heads up on some news about black officers and police brutality. A black man was killed during a traffic stop in Memphis, Tennessee. Five cops were involved, all of them also black. The man was 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. The email continued. There may be a lot more robust conversations around the role black officers play in American policing in the coming months. Now, this wasn't the first time I'd heard about the story. Charlie, my exec producer, had been monitoring it since it broke earlier that month. But this out-of-hours late-night email triggered a wild feeling of dread inside me. Just 20 days before I got that email, Tyree Nichols was alive. In fact, he was driving home from a park. He was an aspiring photographer and he'd go there to take pictures of the sunset. He loved taking those kinds of shots. But at around 8.30pm, he was pulled over by police. For the life of me, I still don't understand how and why things spiralled out of control so suddenly. The release of the shocking video showing Memphis police officers tasing, punching and stomping 29-year-old Tyree Nichols during a traffic stop. The footage released by Memphis PD made me feel sick. You can hear the officers shouting and swearing at Tyree, yelling orders. Tyree obeys. You can hear him responding. He says, Hey, you guys are really doing a lot right now. Bro, lay down. I'm just trying to go home. Things escalate quickly. Tyree tries to run, but is caught and aggressively beaten by five black cops. His screams are chilling. His calls for his mum are worse. Three days later, Tyree Nichols died from his injuries. At Tyree's funeral, the Reverend Al Sharpton addressed the officers directly. People had to march and go to jail, and some lost their lives to open the doors for you. And how dare you? We won't stop until we hold you accountable and change the system. Black officers killing a black man. It changed a lot. Do the stories of black officers even matter now? It's a massive question. Now, this certainly isn't the last time we'll talk about Tyree in the show. But to me, his story has only raised more questions around race and policing. And the biggest question of all, when you're on the inside, why does the fact that you're a cop seem to trump the fact that you're black? So for me, Tyree's case makes this story so much more important. To find out who black cops are, who they really are. And to understand that, you need to understand where they come from and what made them cops. From Curious Cast and Blanchard House, I'm Saren Jones, and this 
is black and blue behind the badge. Episode two, Boys in the Hood. Trying to figure out why black police officers choose this line of work is confusing. And what's even more confusing is why an officer like Mike Morrison, who we met last episode, would stay. So let's find out. We're going to go back to where we left off. It's 1990. Michael Morrison is trapped, policing at transit in Newark, Penn Station. He feels like his boss, Captain Joseph Bober, has it in for him. And the pressure's growing unbearable. I knew that if I stayed at transit, very soon I'll be brought up on fake charges and fired. It sounds extreme, but Mike Sapp fears the same. And if it's true, Mike Morrison has everything to lose. Being fired would mean he and his family would spiral back into poverty. He has to act fast. And I saw a real tiny advertisement, Maplewood Police Hiring. It wasn't, it wasn't big. I didn't know nothing about Maplewood. I just saw the department hiring, you know, and I just took a stab at it. At this point, you may be thinking that it's kind of rogue for Mike to apply to a job in a department that he knew nothing about. Firstly, the guy was desperate. His priority was to get away from Boba ASAP. The point is, he didn't know about Maplewood Police Department, but he did know about the place. In fact, he'd known about it for years. Maplewood was Newark's white neighbor, the town next door that represented wealth, opportunity, and the American dream. And back when Mike was a kid, Crossing the border was a no-go. Well, Maplewood was like the deep south. We were not going to Maplewood when we were kids. Forget about it. Like, just forget about it. Like, you weren't going to that town if you were a black youth. You weren't going to Maplewood. What makes Maplewood striking is its location and the relationship it has with its neighbors. Maplewood sits high up in the middle of a string of towns that blend into one another as suburbs of the city of Newark. The town's neighbours, Irvington, East Orange, Vauxhall, and Newark itself, are poorer, more densely populated, and much blacker neighbourhoods. Newark is where it all started for Mike, born in the 60s and raised in the 70s. He grew up around the Weequake section, with 15 to 20 other neighbourhood kids. They were the kids on the block. But there was one kid in particular who Mike was tight with. Tony, my smart friend. And and I was always proud of him because he, you know, they had specialty schools in Newark during that time. They had arts high. They had science high. So all the average students, for lack of a better word, went right next door to Weekway High. Tony went to science high. He was smart, you know. Like, he had a whole plan. Mike was a scrawny, scrawny little kid. He was real skinny. <laughs> That's Tony. Real skinny, and um, I don't know, for some reason, Mike wore her shoes on the wrong feet. And it just it was just like that for a long time. <laughs> I have no reason why he did it, but that's what that was Mike. Yep, you heard that right. That's not a metaphor. Mike did actually wear his shoes on the wrong feet. Mike and Tony became brothers, boys in the hood. And they grew up in a time when Newark was changing. 
the city of Newark has had its fair share of blows. In July 1967, a black cab driver called John Smith was beaten by two white police officers for a minor traffic offence. And the brutality sparked the Newark Rebellion. The city was hit with five days of violence. And the result? 26 deaths and more than 1,400 arrests. The uprising was the beginning of an all-too-familiar story. White flight mixed with government cuts that would change the face of the city. But in the wake of the unrest, and even though money was tight, Mike and Tony were just two boys trying to live their lives. So things started changing um, the mid to late 60s. You know, everything changed after the riots. More white families fled, more black families moved in. And before you know it, Newark had started over. I mean, we, we had everything in the neighborhood you needed. We had a pool hall, a meat market, um, bagel store, flower shop. We had um, a diner right up the street. The city was up and running again. And the elementary school offered everything we needed. They ran sports and kept everybody out of trouble. Anything from touch football, softball, little league, we had it all. And the most iconic part of town, Chancellor Avenue, is where it was all happening. The Chancellor Avenue corridor was was full of stores. We had a sit-down Chinese restaurant on the corner called China Hall. We had luncheonettes every on each corner. Um, there was a bar and liquor store on one corner. That was on the corner of Chancellor and Leslie Street. Great, great neighborhood. When we met up with Mike in Newark in 2022, we took a trip down memory lane. All these houses, like when I was younger, you could run in and everybody in the early 70s, we could run into their houses and run. You never know where your child was at. So all of these houses here, all the doors were open? Open, open. Running, every kid, running out of everybody's house. This was Mike's stomping ground. He grew up here with his single mum and four siblings. They didn't have much, but they made it work. Even though we were poor, my mother always made holidays happen. You know, uh, Christmas happened, Thanksgiving happened. Some years we gave a different meaning to cold turkey, you know. <laughs> but my mom, without a doubt, definitely is a, is, is a hero to me. Men weren't a constant in Mike's life. Except for one high school teacher, he wasn't exposed to many positive black male role models. His dad didn't really come into the picture until his teenage years. So his stepdad was his first temporary father figure. We go to the beach. I mean, it's my stepdad. I just remember as a young child getting on his back and him swimming out into the beach in the ocean and coming back in. And I remember riding his, on his back at the beach. So I do have fond memories of him, but also I witnessed domestic violence from him also. He brought darkness into their home. I do remember one incident in particular where all of us, all of us jumped in to help. You know, it got that bad that all of us kids, you know, we jumped in to help our mom. And at times, Mike's mom wasn't the only victim. He was, he was rough, you know. I mean, he, he popped me in the mouth because I said, son of a gun at five. He said it was too close. Mike was living a double life. Behind closed doors, he was an adult, 
trying to fix problems that he shouldn't have had to fix. But when he wasn't at home with his stepdad and he was out on the streets with his friends, he was a kid. When he was out on the block, life was good. What we did when you came home from school, you did your homework and then you ran outside to play. And we would be out there for hours. I mean, until the street lights came on. We, we played pop guns, right? Um, a street, street football. We all went and played basketball, hide and seek, stuff like that. We, we, we had a great childhood. We had this game called Chase, where the young kids would run from the older kids. And if the older kids caught you, they gave you a wedgie. <laughs> you know, so. Then there were the freight trains. We'd be sitting out on the stoop on the corner or playing in the middle of the street, doing whatever. We would hear the horn, the train horn. And once the train horn went off, everyone in our group, we start running towards the train. And once we jumped on the train, we just ride the train all the way down to a weekway park. And we'd be on the train, some of us on top of the train, you know, jumping from train to train. And nobody got hurt. I mean, I wouldn't allow my kids to do that today, but back then, you know, we did all kind of crazy stuff. Sprinting down streets, jumping on trains. This was a totally different era. These were the good old days. The kids were living freely in their utopian American childhood without a care in the world. You know, on one occasion, on the way back on the train tracks, there's a great cake pastry store, factory, that made, you know, devil dogs and ring dings and things like that. And one day, there was a truck there, and um, <laughs> the back of the truck was open, and we, we grabbed a couple of Drake cakes. <laughs> we just helped ourselves on the way home, walking down the train tracks. So just just a, a great, great neighborhood to grow up in. Uh, it, it, was, it was fabulous. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Despite being poor, Mike says he didn't feel poor because his life was rich, rich with friendships and rich with memories. But as the kids got older, things started to change. And by the time they reached high school, Newark faced its second blow. In the late 1970s, the local government made cuts to arts and recreation in Newark. Facilities closed, support systems were gone. Things weren't looking good. I mean, all the bad kids, good kids, everybody did recreation. And when they took recreation away, you had to find things to do. So after school, you know, that's how you got in trouble. For the kids on the block, opportunities were dwindling. But Mike was lucky. He had a passion, something to keep him on the straight and narrow. Karate. Karate saved my life because it kept me from the lure of the drugs and the alcohol that my peers were taking part of because I always wanted to be in shape and be prepared for the next match that I had coming up. Karate saved my life. Karate kept him in check. Karate gave me a discipline, you know. It kept me from putting negative things in my body, smoking and drinking and stuff like that. But it was also necessary self-defense on the streets of Newark. Because I always wanted to be ready to fight or someone, 
you know, challenge you, you know, I want to be ready to accept the challenge. So even though Mike had the structure that kept him in line, the cuts to recreation made it harder for the neighborhood kids to stay out of trouble. And law enforcement became a presence in their lives. In my community, we looked at the police as they are the ones who lock us up. So being a young, you know, African-American male in the city, you know, we didn't look at the police as our friends, you know. Police are the ones that lock you up. The kids had more and more time on their hands, and run-ins with the police became more frequent and more serious. We were kind of all sitting around, and I think it was my idea um, to kind of do sort of semi-protest. You know, we wanted to make a statement. You know, recreation is gone, so what, what are we going to do? The kids were frustrated. Their hangout spots had shut down. They had nothing to do. But then it hit him. We decided to go break into the high school to play basketball. Good kids left making pretty bad decisions. We, we were just kids looking for stuff to do. It was like 15 of us. We were in there playing basketball, had a full court, and we looked up, and there was a Newark police officer standing in every door just watching us play ball. Next thing I know, the cops come running in there, and we all started running. They took us all in, they put us in the police car, and they locked us all up for trespassing. Police officers lied on us, too. They said we broke into the home ec department. The home ec classroom was cooking food. We didn't do any of that stuff. But that's what they said we did. And they called mothers. So we sat there and we waited. Like, we hear your mother come pick get one of our friends up. And we would hear them get a beating outside. Right? Because their mom is beating them. And another one come get picked up. And we hear them get a beating outside. But Mike and his brother got lucky that day. Their mom wasn't home. She was on vacation. And my friend's mother signed us out. And listen, right? (laughs) And so the next day, right, me and my brother are the only ones outside playing. Everyone is on punishment, right? (laughs) I was on punishment for a whole month. Um, (laughs) after that incident. This was just the beginning. Kind of innocent in a way, breaking into the school to play basketball. But everything was about to change. As time passed and Newark began to crumble, the kids were becoming more restless and the streets more violent. And then when Newark had its third blow, it all accelerated. Oh boy, mid-80s, things took a dive. Police credit the massive wave of publicity surrounding the dangers of crack, which emerged after the death of American basketball star Len Bias. Crack usage has reached epidemic proportions in the U.S. The addictiveness of this substance and its association with criminal activity is alarming. Crack is the poor man's cocaine, a deadly and cheap mixture of cocaine, baking soda and water that can be smoked instead of snorted. By the 1980s, crack cocaine hit Newark hard the city was one of the worst affected in the whole country. And the impact it had on black youth was massive. Deaths by overdose, families devastated by incarceration, 
unemployment, homelessness, children pushed into foster care. Homicides of young black men nearly doubled in a decade. It decimated a generation. But the biggest change Tony noticed was the street they loved the most. The tree-lined sidewalks with the Chinese restaurant, the eating spots and the liquor stores. The biggest change was Chancellor Avenue. That whole block where the um, apartment buildings were that had the storefronts was gone. I mean, it, it looked like Beirut, it was that bad. The guys were losing their city and there was nothing they could do about it. It was shocking to see it. Um, from our childhood to to grow up and, and, and have all of that and no longer being there, it was depressing. And the system wasn't helping. To try and curb the epidemic, Congress passed new laws, making sentences involving crack cocaine way more severe than those involving powder cocaine. But the impact on black communities already struggling with the drug was ruinous. There's a stereotype that crack is associated with poor and black Americans, while powder is associated with richer white Americans. And sentences for dealing crack were way more harsh than for dealing powder, 100 times more harsh. This became known as the 100 to 1 ratio. Mike shared his memories of that time as we drove around his old neighborhood. You're just hearing about people getting shot and, and dying and maybe going back around through the block and seeing people still hanging out there. The crack epidemic, cuts to vital social services, then the crackdown with these harsher sentences, it devastated the city and changed the lives of pretty much everyone in it. It was pretty tough on, on a lot of people in the neighborhood. Um, I mean, a lot of families fell victim to um, crack cocaine. You know, my family included. You know, my younger sisters, a lot of people we grew up with um, got hooked on that. That's how readily available it was. As much as I preached to them, um, they dabbed in that stuff and took its toll on, on, on my family as well. So uh, it was hard to escape. It was hard to escape. The days of jumping trains and stealing candy were over. We went from 20 kids all playing in the street to now it's 10 because some of my friends decided to hang out on a corner and just sell drugs or do drugs. Like, it's the early 80s when this era became not so safe anymore. The change was immense. At the age of 10 and 11, Mike and his friends were playing with pop guns, but... By 18 and 19, you know, they're using real guns and shooting people. The violence was seeping into the city through the cracks, and it was reaching the kids on the block, making them do the unthinkable. We had an old guy that used to sell lollipops outside the school. I can see his face. Uh, older gentleman, slender, tall, salt and pepper beard. A uh, uh, Muslim fella, very personable, nice guy. He's about 6'4". And um, he was out there every day when, when we got out of school. I remember the big rock outside the school. He would be right by that rock. And he had like a, a little truck with lollipops on it. 
and he would sell his 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 lollipops. He was always at all the basketball games too. The nicest, nicest guy you you ever want to meet. But the time of innocence was well and truly over. No one was safe. The lollipop man's life would end suddenly and violently. One of my friends, very close friends, murdered him, robbing him, you know, and it was definitely a tragedy. And when that happened, I mean, it was serious. My friend, he wasn't a tough type of guy, like you would thought would even do something like that, you know. So even I think he was a victim of the era of, of maybe the product of society during that time making a bad decision. It was more surprising to me because it was such out of character for him to do that. Newark became a crime scene and a manhunt for Mike's friend, killer of the lollipop man, was underway. The neighborhood was full of Newark police and he was such a, a known figure in the community that the Newark police were riding around the cars with civilians looking for him, looking in garages under cars, like looking in the hallways. It was a little incident. Everybody knew that they were looking for him. Mike's friend ended up doing around 15 years in prison before he came out. By the time Mike saw him next in the neighborhood, they were adults and Mike was a cop. Mike and Tony's hometown was declining fast. It was spiraling out of control and things only got worse. As the years passed, the incarceration rates of black men shot up. And when crack came down hard on Newark, so did the gangs. I was coming up and that stuff that was happening out in California, I I honestly said, that, I said that gang stuff wouldn't happen here in New Jersey. It just wouldn't happen because we weren't into that. You know, we were into dressing nice, talking to the girls, and partying and going to the parties. That's what we were into. That gang stuff came later. Mike and Tony were among the ones who escaped. Mike and I, we were fortunate we made the best of it. We were able to leave the neighborhood, you know, after it turned bad. Tony left Newark for the Air Force. Then he went to college, 40 miles north of the city. Mike's exit was way harsher. His family got evicted by the sheriff's department. It was a nice summer day and a truck came down the street with a sheriff's department sign on it, a moving truck that came. But it's embarrassing because guess what? There is no confusion about what's happening to you. You know, when that truck comes down the street, everyone knows what's going on. You're not moving on your own when that truck comes down the street. I mean, I was like 18 at the time, so I knew I knew things were bad. When Mike's family lost the house, they split up. His mum found a new home with his youngest sister. Another sister moved in with her boyfriend, and another jumped around, crashing on sofas. But Mike and his brother moved in with his dad. For the long term, Mike needed a real way out. Something that would give him the life he wanted, a job where he could earn good money and provide for his family. And that way out was law enforcement. In Newark, oh man, a lot of people went into law enforcement. If you were able to um, keep your nose clean and not get a record and get in trouble, those were good jobs. At that time, they didn't allow us at the port to work at Port Newark. You know, so if you if you didn't go to college, 
correction officer, police officer, those were the go-to jobs to get, you know, because they were good paying jobs. I don't want to make it sound like Mike didn't have any options, but, you know, that's, that's what it was. Mike needed to make being a police officer work more than anything, which is why when things started to go wrong at Transit, when Mike was facing what he saw as blatant racism under Captain Boba, he knew he had to find a new department. But getting away wouldn't be easy. He's trying to ruin me. You know, he's trying to ruin my career. So here's where Maplewood comes in. Mike's application to Maplewood PD progressed slowly. He did his physical and written tests and even had his first interview. Now he was waiting on the department to complete its background check. It was all looking good until he received a call from the executive officer. And he called me in. He said, Martha, I need you to come in. Your background check's not done, but I need you to come in. So I went to his office and he sat me down and he said, I'm going to hire you. You seem like a good kid. Nothing seems to be... um." coming up negative about you, but what's up with this guy? The officer pressed a button on the phone receiver. It was a voicemail. This is what Mike says he heard next. It was Captain Bulber saying bad things about me. I'm, I'm not going to be an asset to the police department, trying to tell him I'm a bad person. He said that I was crashing up the police vehicles. I was getting in a lot of accidents, and none of this was true. None of this was true. So he was trying to stop me from getting on the Maple Police Department. By Mike's reckoning, Captain Boba was trying to sabotage his chances of getting into Maplewood PD. Mike had to save himself. He didn't hesitate. He told the police captain, He's a racist, you know. Just, just plain and simple. Despite the bad job review Mike says Boba gave him, in the end, he did get the job. But no sooner had Mike escaped transit than he was confronted with a horrible dilemma. That was the same time that there was a class action lawsuit against him and a minority officer at transit caught me. It was a chance to expose Captain Boba's alleged racism but Mike knew it would come at a great cost. They knew how he treated me, and they wanted me as a transit officer to be a part of this lawsuit. And I had a decision. I said, you know, I'm a new black officer at this all-white police department, and they want me to drag the executive officer who is my star witness. For Mike, it was an impossible position to be in. So I did not want to start this new job with a cloud that, you know, I'm suing people, I'm suing, I'm suing departments and um, bring the drama to the small town. So I did not want that to be the town's first impression of me, that I'm coming in to sue people. So I decided not to be involved with the lawsuit and just start my job, you know, quietly. Now, you may judge Mike for not backing his colleagues when they needed him, for not holding Boba to account. But let's think of it from Mike's point of view. To be torn between self-preservation and challenging the status quo. Especially if sticking it to the white man is going to end up hurting you more anyway. Captain Boba denied all the allegations against him. And that lawsuit, it wasn't successful. 
Although Michael Morrison had made it out of transit, his best friend, Mike Sapp, was still inside. And for Mike Sapp, there was plenty of unfinished business. He decided to take up Captain Boba's alleged offer of meeting at the dumpster to take him on, on Michael Morrison's behalf. So I go over to police headquarters. It's shift change. Bunch of cops in the room. So I went to the doorway of his office. So I said, hey, uh, yeah, Cap, I understand you're offering to uh, fight people over by the dumpster. Is that is that correct in what I'm hearing? I'll meet you over there. And I start taking my gun belt off. And I said, yeah, right over here at, at the dumpster. And it got quiet. Everybody froze. So he got up and I said, oh, OK, you ready? And he started coming towards me. But what he did was he grabbed his door and he slammed it. Boom. And everybody said, oh, my God, kid, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. You just asked the cat. I said, no, no, no. He was asking people. He asked Mike Morrison if he wanted to go out by the dumpster and fight. Mike told him, no, I, I want to go out by the dumpster and fight. I'll, I'll take him up on his offer. I guess he don't want to fight, though. Mike Sapp says after that incident, his name was mud at transit. He felt he had no hope of a career. Not while Captain Boba was in charge. If I had thought of staying at New Jersey Transit Police long term, Bober immediately came to the front of my mind and I said, there's no way I can do a career here. This guy wouldn't allow it. And so, like his brother, Mike Morrison, Mike Sapp felt he was left with no choice. I never saw that I would be able to make progress or be happy or comfortable there. And so, like everyone else, you know, I started looking around to, to go to another agency. Because Captain Boba wasn't going anywhere. Not for a long time. Decades, in fact. For 35 years, he had a successful career at Transit. And in 2002, Captain Boba became Chief Boba. But then the lawsuit started again, and with a vengeance. At least five separate suits alleging misconduct, including sexual and racial discrimination. Boba denied all the allegations. Then, in 2009, in one of those lawsuits, a Newark jury found he retaliated against a female officer who'd complained of sexual discrimination. Chief Boba stepped down. He admitted no wrongdoing and maintains that he wasn't fired. The agency said only that his employment with NJ Transit ended. Then, a few years later, in 2012, New Jersey Transit agreed to settle a lawsuit by a group of minority officers who alleged that Chief Boba had for years used racial slurs against them, including the N-word. The department agreed to pay the officers $5.8 million to settle the case. Attempts to reach Boba for comment at the time were unsuccessful. But Transit knew the problem went beyond one bad boss. It's reported that the department had paid out more than $12 million in total to settle discrimination lawsuits, including those against the former chief. Transit knew it had to change. It committed to a comprehensive cultural assessment of their police department, including a nationwide search for a new police chief and HR boss. A statement at the time said they were completely committed to promoting a fair and respectful workforce where complaints are treated impartially and fairly. 
In making this program, I contacted both former Chief Joseph Boba and the New Jersey Transit Authority to see if they would speak to me. Neither Transit nor the former chief responded to my requests. Michael Morrison wasn't part of any of those lawsuits. Neither was Mike Sapp. And despite everything that happened, the high-profile lawsuits, the seven-figure settlements, all of Transit's commitments to change, they feel that none of that is adequate, given how they say Boba behaved for decades. To me, one of the sad things was that Here's a man that engaged in blatant racism throughout his career, became the chief of police, was sued several times for millions of dollars, and he was able to retire and collect his pension. To me, that's a crime, and, and that's an injustice to the people of New Jersey. Next time on Black and Blue, Mike's in Maplewood we meet one of his new colleagues, Larry Washington, who was born and bred in the projects. And it's a long journey from the projects to the police. I can recall a man who spoke with us while we were in a police academy, him basically saying, you guys as police officers will have more power than the president of the United States. So we're like, what the hell? Like, what are you talking about? Larry tries his best to use that power to help the people who need him. But according to Larry, the man at the top, the white man at the top, has other plans. He never, never, never defended me. You've been listening to Black and Blue, a Blanchard House production for Curious Cast. Black and Blue is hosted, written, and produced by me, Saren Jones. Script consultant, Soraya Shockley. The sound recordist is Vulcan Kizzeltuk. Original music is by Daniel Lloyd Evans, Louis Nankmanel, and Toby Matamong. Sound design and mix engineering is by Toby Matamong. Voice coaching by Vicky Merrick. The managing producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. The creative director of Blanchard House is Rosie Pye. The head of content at Blanchard House is Lawrence Grizel. The executive producers are Charlie Bell and Lawrence Grizel. For Curious Cast, the executive producers are Dila Velasquez and Chris Duncombe. Thank you.